Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. Good to have all of you here. Uh, thank you, Tyler, for that children's class. You know, I found it, it makes such a big difference, uh, the kind of attitude I have when, I, when I'm reading the Bible. Like if I'm reading it just kind of because this is the thing to do and, you know, it's 6.30 or whatever time in the morning, it's time to read my Bible. It, it's, it's, it's just like a world of difference than if I come to it thinking, you know, I need, I need what, what's in this book and I need to be spoken to from this book. And so, yeah, that's a good reminder for us. This morning, our, our uh, message comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, the uh, end, last half of chapter 3 and a few verses from chapter 4. Just making a little more progress in this series from 1 Peter. And uh, hopefully we'll wrap this up before too long. So this is, uh, yeah, again, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 through chapter 4, verse 3. And I thought I'd start off with some true or false questions. Not for you to answer out loud, but just to think about. Some of these are, are talked about in our passage. So here are some true or false questions. Children of God are safe from harm. Is that true or is it false? True or false, unless you study apologetics, you really can't give an answer for the hope that is within you. True or false, God allows suffering, but it is never actually his will that Christians should suffer. True or false, it is possible for Christians to have the same mindset that Jesus had. So we're going to study this passage in three sections. The first section is verses 13 through 17, and I gave this section the title, Who Can Harm You? And then verse, verses 18 through the end of the chapter, I gave that the title, Christ Also Suffered. And then the first three verses of chapter 4, I gave the title, Therefore Arm Yourselves. So we'll look at each of these sections kind of one at a time, not spending quite equal time on each of them. Let's start off here in verse 13. I'm reading from the New King James Version. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So going back to verse 13, Peter has a rhetorical question. Who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good. And so he's asking a rhetorical question, and the implied answer is no one. Now, I used to read this and, and think that Peter was saying, if you do what is good, it is unlikely that anyone will give you grief or persecute you. That's how I used to read this. But I've kind of moved away from that interpretation because the whole letter 
kind of expects persecution. In fact, he's writing to readers who are in the middle of suffering. And in chapter 4, he says, Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. So that, that take on verse 13 doesn't, in my mind, doesn't fit very well. And so what I think he's actually saying is that there is a sense in which no one can harm God's children. So if you think about it, uh, we know that no one can separate us from the love of God. No one can snatch us from God's hand. Uh, thieves cannot steal the heavenly treasure, which Peter calls incorruptible. We won't be tempted beyond what we can endure. endure. And it's kind of like what Peter says back in chapter 1. We are kept by the power of God through faith. So I think he's saying there, from an eternal perspective, we are safe, we are secure in God, and no one can harm us. No one can harm our soul. No one can harm us from an eternal perspective. Going on to verse 14, he says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. So this is very similar to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So those who suffer for Christ are blessed. They can expect great reward in heaven. Luke 6.23 even says, leap for joy for suffering for those who suffer for Christ. And so when I look at this and, and I think about um, suffering and God's reward and God's faithfulness, I think about the... I think there is always this pattern of when we give something to God, he gives us back something more. Uh, and, and sometimes it's not, often it's not something tangible, and maybe it's not something we see in this lifetime. But when we give things up to God, he gives back more. The other, the other morning, uh, Grayson suffered a disappointment. His uh, yellow balloon, which was the only yellow balloon in the house and which had just been blown up for his birthday party, it popped. It's kind of hard to build much foreshadowing around balloons. You kind of know that's going to happen. So it, it popped and he was pretty sad about it. Uh, quite sad. And so Colleen said, you know what, I'll take you to Dollar General and we'll get you another yellow balloon. Well, somehow in Dollar General, that balloon went from being a yellow balloon into being a pinata for his birthday party. So his small balloon disappointment turned into a pinata full of candy. And Colleen came home and told me, you know, this seems like a good sermon illustration. And I thought so too. Now, a lot of... Um, Again, 
Many of the rewards, the blessings we receive from God are not tangible ones. You, know, you can't put your hands on them, maybe. Um, but I do think that God, and sometimes he asks us to give up stuff that we don't see, we don't see results for in our lifetime. But I do believe he always gives more back. And I, I don't mean to be trivializing uh, Christians suffering, persecuted Christians, terrible things are happening to Christians around the world. And I believe God is distressed about that and cares deeply. But when you, when you believe, it kind of changes the, the perspective a bit. When you believe that God, God's children are blessed even during times of persecution. Which is why Peter can go on to say, do not be afraid of their, th- do not be th- afraid of their threats. There in verse 14. Now there he's probably quoting Isaiah chapter 8, uh, verse, verse 12. And I'm not going to turn to those verses there, but uh, be a little homework assignment for you if you wanted. Read Isaiah 8, verses 12 through 14 and can compare it to what Peter is saying here. Um, I, I think those verses there in Isaiah are very, um, they're beautiful verses and encouraging and really fit into what Peter is saying. The right kind of fear delivers us from the wrong kind of fear. So then going on into verse 15, we get these, this familiar uh, phrase, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Sanctify there is the same word that is in the Lord's Prayer when it, when it says, Hallow, hallowed be thy name. It's the same word. Hallow the Lord God in your hearts. Depending on which manuscript your translation is using, it might say sanctify Christ as Lord instead of sanctify the Lord God. Just a little variation in the translation there or the manuscript. hallowing Christ, hallowing God. Uh, it really needs to be the, you know, the, the core motivation for everything we do or many of the important decisions we make anyway. We'll talk about this a bit more. Let's look at this question. What does it mean to be ready to give a defense? Kind of brings us back to our true or false question. Unless you study apologetics, you really can't give an answer for the hope that is within you. And I'm going to say that one is false. Not because apologetics and evidences are not important. I think they are and definitely have a place. But not everybody has the the, the, the time, the opportunities, the education or even just the, a head for remembering a bunch of scholarly arguments. Not everyone can do that, and I certainly don't feel like I can. I remember even John Piper said once, I can't remember all the arguments. You know, who, who goes around remembering all of these arguments? Is that what he's talking about? And what Peter, I think, is talking about is he, he's talking about something that every Christian should be able to do. When I was 
studying this verse. I remember Dan Freed had a few things to say about it. And um, I can't remember when he said what I remember him saying. I couldn't remember exactly what he said, but I was interested. So I sent him an email and said, hey, could you help me out with my sermon? Which is always a good good, uh, way to get help with your sermon, right? So I asked him for his thoughts on this verse, told him I remembered that he had had some comments on it. So here's what he wrote me back, and I'll read part of his email. He said, I was probably in my late 30s when I first saw 1 Peter 3.15 through the passage context of suffering, because that is the context of the passage of suffering, right? And also through the key of Jesus in my heart is the reason that I can have hope. Earlier, I felt fearful and inadequate because I saw the verse through, always be ready to give an answer. Somehow I thought that a successful Christian had a head full of answers ready to speak at any moment to anyone with any question. Learning that Jesus in my heart is the core answer gave me much courage. It was a relief to stop worrying that my head cannot contain all the answers that Josh McDowell or Ken Ham carry in their heads. So by focusing on Jesus, his person, his cross work, and his heart work in me, I find hope. Hope in the hard situations too. So even when detailed answers are missing and my emotions go up and down, I find my peace in him. And I agree with Dan's take on these verses. I think this verse is talking more about us pointing people to Jesus. You know, when we are, um, when we are suffering and we still have hope and peace and even joy, in the midst of suffering, and we get asked, why? What's the reason for that? The place to start is by saying, because I I have Jesus, I believe in Jesus, I'm in a relationship with Jesus. Uh, There's definitely a place for uh, intellectual answers, and, and I think there need to be those kinds of studies and and responses to difficult questions, I think those need to happen. And, um, you know, just the other day, I was listening to someone explaining how, you know, the fact that it was the women who came to the tomb and first discovered that the tomb was empty. You know, the testimony started with them instead of it being the apostles helps uh, show us it gives support to the fact that the, the apostles did not just make up this story. Otherwise, they would, have, they would have made it be men who discovered the tomb was empty, or it would have been themselves who discovered the tomb was empty first, but instead it was the women. Always be ready to give an answer. Verse 16, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. So part of being ready to give an answer is having a good conscience and good conduct. So if you don't have a good conscience or good conduct, you really aren't ready to give an answer. I think if if that's the case, we're probably going to be the ones who are ashamed and not the other way around. Even if we have the intellectual arguments, the verbal arguments figured out and ready, you know, if our lives aren't measuring up, it, it's, it's going to be uh, 
It's gonna be a very weak and unimpressive testimony. People are gonna make broad and false accusations against Christians, but Christians ought to be the kind of people that stand up to scrutiny, and the closer they get with non-Christians, non-Christians should be convinced that this person is genuine, and there is something special going on in this person's life. Christians ought to be showing that their lives have been shaped by the master builder and, and they are a new creation in progress. They should not be like the shelves in my basement that I made recently. They look okay from a distance. I mean, they're definitely, they do the job. But when you get up close to them, you will see that they were not built by a master craftsman and someone who knows the basics about the rights and wrongs of carpentry would say, yeah, not, not so impressive. You know, I could probably do a better job than that, they might say, even if they weren't master carpenters themselves. Uh, in the same way, non-Christians should be impressed when they get up close and observe our lives. That's how it should work. Not that we're perfect people or anything, but there should be something different We want people to say, you know, I used to think Christians were just a bunch of self-righteous hypocrites, but I realized, you know what, these, these people are serious, genuine, and not saying, we don't want them to say, he looks good from a distance, he seems like a really, you know, upstanding man, but you actually get to know him and you'll find out he, he cuts corners just like everybody else. He knows who number one is. You know, he's not that different. People... Um, even non-Christians, maybe uh, not many non-Christians are so depraved that they can't recognize good behavior and can't be impressed by honesty and sincerity and, and unselfishness. They are able to be won over, impressed, impacted by good conduct. And this all starts by people who sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. And what really impacts people isn't the verbal explanations that we might have, which have their place, but it's having a heart that hallows Jesus. Earlier in this chapter, it talks about wives who can win over an unbelieving husband without a word. Going on to verse 17, tells us, For it is better, if it is the will of God, if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good. So that can be the, the will of God, for Christians to suffer for doing good. Doesn't mean God has let us down. Doesn't mean he's become unfaithful. Over in chapter 4, he writes, Therefore let those who suffer according to, to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good, as to a faithful creator. Okay, so that's kind of the first section. I want to step back and, and draw two conclusions from this first lump of verses, and then we'll move on to uh, the rest of these. So one conclusion, one takeaway I have is just that you will be blessed for doing the right thing. If I would paraphrase verses 13 and 14, it says, if you're a follower of what is good, who can harm you? 
Even if you suffer, you will be blessed. So even if, even if you are misunderstood, just kind of generalizing suffering here, if you're misunderstood or criticized or embarrassed or made fun of or have to make major sacrifices, you will be blessed for doing the right thing. So that's, that should be our focus, doing the right thing, not so worried about what the cost might be, not, not recommending that we just rush into decisions without weighing the consequences. We do need to be careful about finding the will of God and listening to his spirit and, and all of that. But once we're confident that something is the right thing to do, that Jesus would do this if he were in this situation, then it is time to stop counting the costs we will be blessed for doing the right thing. Actually, I do have a caveat to that, and that's the second takeaway, which is this. My choices need to come from a heart that hallows Jesus, that hallows God. So you can do the right thing for the wrong reasons. And when we do that, we disqualify ourselves from the blessing God would intend us to have. We get man's blessing instead so Jesus said about the Pharisees. So it is, it's, it's easy to do things in the name of Jesus, but not really for Jesus. But our prayer should be, hallowed be thy name. That should be the focus. He, he does, Jesus deserves all the glory and the honor and the reverence. He suffered and died for us. He gave us Hope when we didn't have any. He gave hope for our children, for our friends, for the lost. And so we should be devoted to, to bringing him glory. And hallowing Jesus needs to be the, the core motivation behind everything we do, especially when we're, we're trying to serve him. That needs to be the motivation. Uh, when, we, when hallowing the name of Jesus is what motivates the way we live our lives, then it, I believe they take on a quality higher than what we would be able to bring about on our own. It's like the project goes into the hands of a master builder. But when it becomes about us, then the quality goes down. It doesn't stand up to inspection. Let's go on and read through verses 18 through 22. Christ also suffered. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few... That is, eight souls were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. And Peter, I just want to emphasize something here, that Peter knows what he's talking about and saw it up close. In chapter 5, he says, 
He was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He saw Jesus die on the cross. He knew that Jesus was a good man and an innocent man. He knew Peter was a bad man. He had just finished denying Jesus three times. He saw Jesus go through that suffering and come out the other side victorious, resurrected, vindicated, glorified. And so in this passage, he is, he is calling Christians to follow the same pattern, the same, go down the same road. He says, you were, in chapter 2, he said, you were called to this because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. So Christians should be willing to suffer for Jesus. We, we will emerge victorious. We owe it to Christ. It's what it means to follow him. And Peter went down this road himself. He, he suffered. He died for Jesus. So Jesus suffered for Peter. Peter suffered for Christ. And Peter's saying, go down the same road. You'll be rewarded. Peter is no fraud. He, he went down this road. He is convinced that suffering, according to the will of God, will result in victory and blessing. So now we get to verse 19, which is a curious verse. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. So it says, the spirit of Jesus, that's the spirit in verse 18, spirit went and preached to spirits in prison who were disobedient. When did this happen? Who are these spirits? What is this prison? No one really knows the answer. There's several different theories floating around out there about what all this means. And I don't think any of them are bulletproof. You know, they're all kind of have their problems. Um, so what I'm going to do is, if you want to talk about this more after church, be happy to discuss it with you. But I don't really have an answer for what all this means. So we're just going to move on. There's... You know, one of the things we could just take away from that is there's a lot going on in the spiritual realm we don't understand. There's a lot of mystery in this book and the way God's kingdom works. So now we get to verse 21, speaking of mysteries. There, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject. So here Peter is saying a few things about baptism. Uh, baptism here is not his main point. He is making some comparisons to baptism here. His main point is that Christ suffered for us. Christ was completely victorious and should be glorified above all else. And we're to follow Christ's pattern. What he is saying about baptism is that it corresponds to the role of the ark in the flood. I remember once hearing a preacher saying, you know, there's two kind, There's immersion, there's pouring, but he thinks floating should be the third way of form of water baptism. 
he wasn't serious. So it corresponds to the role of the ark in the flood, which brought people who obeyed to safety from a certain death to safety. Meanwhile, the water had a cleansing effect on the world, cleansed the world from sin, mostly. And Peter says, baptism saves you. But then he quickly says, it's not the removal of dirt that does this. So it's not the water itself that does it. It seems to be wanting to make it clear that it's not the ritual itself. It's not like a magic kind of ritual that will turn sinners into saints. Uh, when Peter says baptism here, I think he's referring to it in a, in a broader sense to refer to more than just the ceremony itself, but to refer to the spiritual truth that it represents, our death and resurrection in Christ. He says it's an answer of a good conscience toward God. Now, these, this, is a, this is a phrase that has can turn a lot depending on which way they translate certain words. So the word answer is, is a tricky one. It could be appeal, answer, or appeal, which are not quite the same, are they? It could be a pledge or a demand. And then of a good conscience could also be for a good conscience. So the ESV says, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. So just want to show you there is some variation in how that phrase there could be read. Uh, I do have a few just kind of summary thoughts on baptism before we move on. I don't believe that someone is unsaved from the point of their conversion until the time of their baptism. But I do believe that, I, I, and I, but I don't believe that, that baptism is optional or insignificant. I think it is spiritually significant, probably in ways we don't understand. Uh, I, I don't know all that happens at the time of the ceremony itself, but I do believe it is God's designed way for us to publicly pledge ourselves to him, put a stake in the ground. It is a spiritually significant ceremony that shouldn't be neglected. Okay, let's go on to, um, well, I first have, have one comment, kind of one takeaway from, from just these verses, the second section that we read here. And it's just that Jesus has shown us that we can trust all outcomes to him, to God. We can trust the outcomes to God. As it says in chapter 2, Jesus committed himself to him who judges righteously. And so Jesus humbled himself. He surrendered to God's will. Jesus humbled himself and surrendered, just like what he's calling us to. He suffered, and he, he, the outcome on the other side was resurrection and victory and glory, and many people brought to God. So Jesus showed us that we can trust God with the outcomes. So going on to chapter 4, a few verses here, and then we'll be done. <clears throat> chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. 
that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. So these verses tell us that we are able to do something about how spiritually minded we are. He says, arm yourselves with the same mind, the same mind that Christ had, which is the answer to one of our true and false questions. You know, it's not something we can do on our own. It's not something that we could do without God's work in our lives. But it's not just something that God does entirely on his own without our cooperation. Arm yourselves with the same mind. It sounds like a decision. And so it is possible for Christians to somehow adopt the mind of Christ or, or at least get closer to it and move from being self-focused and self-centered, short-term thinking people to being self-sacrificing and eternally focused people. Peter says, we've spent enough time living for ourselves. That needs to be a past life. So my takeaway just from, from this section here is that choosing the mindset of Christ is key to spiritual victory. It is possible for Christians to have the mind of Christ. And that means we have decided that God is to be trusted completely. We're willing to make sacrifices to do his will. And once we enter into that, Peter seems to be saying that the struggle with the flesh is less of a struggle. Choosing the mindset of Christ is key to spiritual victory. So in conclusion, I'll just kind of give a summary of this, kind of four takeaways. First of all, you will be blessed for being a child of God and living for him. That should produce, that is not going to change. If you're faithful, you will be blessed and rewarded for it. That should produce confidence and security. And God is supposed to be our sanctuary. That's supposed to mean something. It should, it should make us feel safe. Second point is my choices need to come from a heart that hallows God. That's how we defend the faith. That's how we point people to Jesus. And when my efforts don't come from a heart that wants to hallow Jesus, uh, it's like turning, it's like taking over the building project and taking it out of God's hands. It'll show. Choices need to come from a heart that hallows God. Thirdly, Jesus showed us we, we can trust all outcomes to God. He went down this road. He was victorious. Peter says, do what he did. And Peter went down the same road and was victorious. And we can do the same thing. And last of all, arming ourselves with Christ's mindset is a key to spiritual victory. And we need to, we need to learn to think like Jesus. We should admire his example and pick up on his patterns. And as we do that, uh, it will equip us. It will weaponize us for the kingdom of God. God bless you. Let's have a song.